what a blessing. I can remember sitting in that little church building two doors down and Melissa playing the piano and pregnant out to here with... And now she's taller than Melissa. And, and I'm old. Amen. And choir. I think I got saved all over again this morning. What a blessing. What an encouragement. We're going to be this morning in the book of Hosea. I don't want you to panic. It's page 1042 on the Pew Bible in front of you. Just open your Bible to the middle. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Daniel, Hosea. It's the first of the minor prophets. So just go right from the middle. If you start getting to all the little obscure books you've gone too far, back up. But I want you to find that place in your Bible. I'd like for you to mark that place in your Bible. Make that an important place in the coming days and weeks as this passage of Scripture has so ministered through my soul in the last week of my life. And I pray that it will do the same for you this morning. I know that God has a message for us. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I pause before you, Lord, and before your perfect and holy word, God, thank you. Thank you for the gift that it is. And Lord, now I ask that you would lay me aside and take control of this time, Lord, and that you would speak to the people that you so love. God, that you have proven a multitude of times your trustworthiness, your sincerity, and your perfection. And so, Father, now may we focus all that we are upon what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Hosea really uh, began to play this amazing role in my life back in early September. And those of you that know me well know that I have a tendency to uh, get, um, I, I get involved in obscure places in the Bible for long periods of time. And I've preached a few messages out of Hosea um, in different Places and God uses them, and people always look at me the same way when I ask them to turn to the book of Hosea. Many people don't know much about it. But this is a wonderful prophetic book. This book is uh, tells the story of this prophet Hosea who is prophesying about 750 B.C. to the northern kingdom of Israel. So while this is going on, Isaiah is prophe- prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's... Obviously, the the normal situation, God sends a prophet because people are being rebellious and there's evil in the land and there's things going on that shouldn't be going on. But, you know, this particular book of the Bible is a little more complicated than that because when you begin to read the book of Hosea, it becomes very clear to you that God is not merely saying what he always says to these people through this prophet. But he has a very unique and a very succinct message to them. He sends this prophet into a people that are experiencing great prosperity. The land is is doing well and the economy is well and the housing market is up and people seem to be doing good. And, you know, people are in church And they're sacrificing as they should. And they're giving as they should. And so the church is full on Sunday. And everyone's bank account is doing well. And things seem to be going great. And God sends Hosea in a very unique way to live out his message before the people. And as I began to think through the events of this last week... God began to impress upon my heart this simple question that I think God is impressing on the hearts of the people that He sent Isaiah to, and that is this. If everything in your life was to stay as it is, would that be okay? Because I think so many times 
the answer in so many lives in this room, including myself, will often be, yeah, that would be okay. Just as long as it doesn't get any worse, Lord. If I can just hold where I am, that will be okay. And what I believe God would say to us today through this remarkable prophet is that the idea of staying where you are is not at all okay with God. In fact, it's repulsive to Him. For when we consider the price that He has paid to redeem us and to set us free from all that we allowed ourselves to be in bondage to. The idea that we would somehow be okay and just stay there. It's totally unacceptable to God. So these words are spoken to God's people and it's a word to instruct them on what to do when God reminds you that He's not done with you yet. Turn to chapter 6, Hosea chapter 6. What we see in Hosea chapter 1 is that God calls Hosea first thing right on the scene to come and start his ministry by marrying a prostitute. Not your normal welcome to ministry command. Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer. She is a known unfaithful woman of the city. They have several children. As the book goes on through chapter 2, we begin to see that he is living out the spiritual adultery that God wants to reveal to the people who think that they're okay. And when we get to chapter 3, we see that God calls Hosea to go and rekindle the love that he once had for his wife, Gomer. You see, because what happens... In between the marriage in chapter 1 and the redemption in chapter 3 is that slowly over time, Gomer slides back into her old way of life. And I want you to think for a minute about the context of what this is saying. In other words, here is a woman who is a prostitute. Here is a woman who clearly grew up in a very unconventional, unhealthy, dysfunctional way. And her life... It's tragic in so many ways. And suddenly God sends a man to come and to love her for who she is, to invite her in to safety and prosperity, to care for her and to, to show her the good things of life. And though that is celebrated momentarily, it doesn't take long for Gomer to begin to slide ever so slowly back to the person that she once was. And so we see in chapters 4 and 5, God over and over calling His people to see all of the subtleties that they think are no big deal that He will not stand for. He's calling them to look in the mirror and to see themselves as He sees them. And then we come to chapter 6. And chapter 6 begins with what I have called a painful reminder of God's unceasing love. A painful reminder of God's unceasing love. Let's read Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn and He will heal us. He has stricken. But he will bind us up after two days. He will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His goings forth is established as the morning. And he will come to us like the rain. Let the latter and the former rain. To the earth now. The first thing I want you to see is that God reminds us of his unceasing love by, first of all, an invitation and an intervention. There's this invitation in verse one. It begins with come and let us return to the Lord. 
Now, the Bible doesn't say come and you return. It says come and let us return. This is a corporate invitation to the people of God. So I want you to see, first of all, that God's invitation to us this morning is as a people. Not simply as an individual. So if you have come this morning and maybe you are a little discouraged, maybe you are dejected or confused or facing some depression, I want you to know that you're not alone and that God is calling all of us together as His people. Come, all of us. The invitation is to all of His people. But then there's an intervention It's this call to do what? To return, followed by, for he is torn. But what is this return? I want you to think with me for a moment about the fact that you cannot return to a place you have not been. So this, this invitation that's corporate to all of us is to return to a place that we once were. A place that we know. Maybe we have forgotten it. Maybe we have drifted away from it. Maybe it's been several months. Maybe it's been several years. Maybe for some of us in this room, the call is to return to a place that you were decades ago. But the call is to return. The Lord is saying the door is open and the invitation is not to come to a new place. He's calling his people to come to a place that they once were. I want you to see that there's no mention here of straighten up your life and then come. The invitation is not sort out all your problems and then come. The invitation says nothing about you and me improving ourselves in any way or straightening things out or getting things in order. And and God understands and knows our great propensity to make excuses for our life and to not receive His invitation because things aren't in order as they should be. God understands better than we ever will that at every moment of our life, Every second that we breathe His air, our lives are not in order. We're sinners trapped in this flesh. The call is to all of us to come and to return. So that's the invitation with this intervention. Notice the second half of the verse says, For for He has torn... For He will heal us. For He is stricken. For He will bind us up. Now this is sort of a strange statement. And I'll be honest with you. For a long time, several months ago, I remember just pausing here and struggling with this and thinking, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? And then last Sunday came. And He didn't have to explain to me anymore. Then Monday came, and I knew exactly what it was. And then Wednesday came, and I thought, I I think I could write a book on torn. You see, this word torn in the Hebrew, it means to to pull to pieces. It it is a a, a term that, that is used to describe the way an animal rips apart its prey. And that just doesn't seem right. That just didn't seem to me six weeks ago as something God would say. See, many of you know that I grew up without a father. And when you grow up without a father, especially as a young man, it makes for some difficulties in your life. And when you don't have someone there to to teach you and to show you and to lead you and to guide you, it's, it's just a catastrophe. But God saved my soul. He turned my life upside down. And then He gave me two people to sort of fill that spiritual father role in my life. And both of them were preachers. Both of them are named Bill. And both of them 
were ripped from my life in the same week. And suddenly I began to to understand this tearing into pieces. See, in, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Bible says, God says, now see that I, even I, am He. And there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. God uses crisis to return His people to Himself. Now, I know that that sounds harsh. I know that for some of you, that sounds a little bit like something you don't want to think about or something you don't want to experience or something you just don't like me talking about. But it would be harsh and it would be hard to understand if that were the rest of the story, if that was where it ended. But you see, it doesn't. For He is torn, but He will heal us. It's not that He might heal us. It's not that He'll think about healing us. It's that He will heal us. This word heal is a word in the Hebrew that's used to describe the way that a a, a doctor cares for a sick patient and nurses them back to strength. The way that someone would care for the sick or the wounded. The way that maybe you might care for a a, a wounded, sick animal that you have rescued. And you would feed with a little dropper. And you would care for And every day you would look after their needs. And day by day they would get stronger and stronger. That's this word, heal. God says He will heal us. He says He has stricken, but He will Bind us up. Underline this word bind in your Bible. You need to understand that this word bind means to to bandage. It means to personally and intimately care for a wound. Like when a little kid falls and scratches their arm or their knee and they run to their mom. And suddenly they begin to feel better as their mother begins to to clean that wound and care for that wound and so gently and gracefully put that bandage over that sore. That's what this word bind means. And that is very important to understand because this God will tear and He will cause us to be stricken. But He also will heal us and He will bind us. Job 5.18 says, For He bruises, but He binds us up. He wounds, but His hands make whole. Lamentations 3 says, Though He causes grief, yet He will show compassion according to the multitude of His mercies. You see, this is the God that we serve. That His unrelenting love for His people will oftentimes be painful. But thank God it's unrelenting. It's painful because we're prideful. It's painful because we are slow to respond. It's painful because the God of the universe comes before us with an invitation and we somehow ho-hum. God says, return. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll go to church on Sunday and return. Or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll really return. I'll, I'll stay and go to Sunday school. That's like super return. Amen. Glad you got the joke. You know, I'll give a few dollars. I'll return. But you see, God has a whole different purpose here. Second Corinthians 7 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. That you see, God's invitation to return and this intervention of tearing and this strickenness that comes upon our lives, what is this all about? It's about this return to this reminder that there's no salvation apart from brokenness. 
And once you begin to walk in salvation, once you begin to leave that sweet and wonderful place where you were utterly helpless before God and you stood before Him condemned as a sinner, knowing there was no hope or no way for you, but suddenly God saves you and forgives your sin. And what do we do? We begin to walk away from that place. And we begin to become self-sufficient. We begin to fill our heads with knowledge. We, we begin to figure out better ways to do things. We begin to figure out that, well, now my eternity is secure, so I'm okay. So, so I, can, I, I can sort of go back to some of the things I used to do. Then we start hanging around with other Christians and we find out that they do things that we thought we weren't supposed to. So, hey man, it must be alright. And we get away from the place that we were, the brokenness that it took to bring us to the cross, the realization that apart from Him, there is no hope. That's the invitation to return to salvation. Return to the place where there is no other way. Return to the place of helplessness. Return to the place of utter and complete dependence upon God. That's the invitation. That's the reason for the intervention. And God reminds us of His unceasing love for us. Oh, He's good. Through perfect duration. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live in His sight. Now, some people read this verse and they think that this is a a reference to the resurrection. That this is some maybe a precursor or some prophecy about what will occur with Jesus on the cross and through His resurrection. But that's not really what I think God's communicating here. What God is communicating here is that He in His invitation and intervention has perfect duration. In other words, these things will last the exact amount of time that God determines that they need to. They will occur in the exact sequence the way God thinks they ought to. That He is a sovereign God. That He is in control of all things. That He will not leave you or forsake you. He will never forget you. He will never be late. He takes no vacation days. He never gets sick. He never slows down. He's always on time. He always knows best. He won't come a second too early, and He'll never be a second too late. He's perfect in all of His timing, in all of His wisdom, in all of His knowledge, and in all of the ways that He intervenes in our lives. And that's what this is communicating to us, that He is a perfect God. As Psalm 18 says, As for God, His ways are perfect. They're perfect. They're not almost always right on. Listen, you don't think that I'm so spiritual that after no sleep all of Sunday night, come Monday, to find out that my father-in-law is on his deathbed, you don't think that I'm so spiritual that I go, well, okay, God, you, you must know best. I'm thinking, what? Well, what are you doing? God, how can this be good? How can this be loving? How can this be fair? Where's the justice in this? That in the midst of all my world upside down, this, God's perfect. He's perfect. He knew before the foundation of the world that my petty little troubles would come. He knew that. And this this passage in Hosea has so ministered to my heart. God, your timing is right. You know things I'll never know. Lord, I may never understand, but God, you're right. You're perfect in every way. God also reminds us of His unceasing love by 
intimate revelation. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Verse 3 begins with, Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Now, again, there's, there's such a great danger here to just, to just read this and think, Okay, Lord, I know what to do. I need to pursue the knowledge of the Lord. But please hear me. This is not mere information about God that you and I are being called to. There's a world of difference between knowing facts about God and having a heart understanding of who He is. There's a huge, huge difference between having a head full of knowledge and facts and having a heart full of trust and submission. Because see, when the chips are down, when the intervention comes into our lives, the facts won't cut it. What we need is the knowledge of who God is. The heart knowledge of who He is. Don't overlook the New Testament teaching of this very simple principle. We see this all over Scripture, John 3.16. We see it in Acts chapter 10, where the Bible says to him, the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now, that's important because we, we, we say that so often, that you believe in Him, that you believe in Him, but we need to stop and realize the call that that is. It's not to believe about Him. It's to believe in Him. Those are two different things. To believe in is very different than simply, merely believing about. And so when the Bible says, let us pursue, again... I hate to be so technical, but you just have to understand this. This word pursue in the Hebrew is a military term. It's, it's used, it's used for, for an army to pursue after a retreating enemy. It's, it's used for authorities to pursue after a criminal or to, to chase or to put to fight, or even to hunt down like a bounty hunter. That's the word that God uses to describe the way we are to pursue knowledge of Him. That this is not, oh, well, that must mean that tomorrow morning I need to wake up and while I'm drinking my coffee and Good Morning America's on, I'll read three verses. That's not what this is. This is to pursue intentionally with heartfelt fervor to go after the knowledge of the Lord. Now here's the hesitation. That most of us in this room understand what this pursuit will cost. Because when we pursue God the way He's calling us to pursue Him, it always results in repentance. And repentance always results in change. And a proud, comfortable people who want to stay the same don't want to hear repentance and certainly don't want to hear change. But sometimes God has to intervene to get our attention. Sometimes God has to rain down on my life to get my attention. This is not mere information. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes enthusiasm. It takes intensity to pursue the knowledge of God. It takes all of those things. It takes facts. See, if you get outside the facts, if you pursue the knowledge of God with just heartfelt intensity and no facts, you're going to get way messed up. You can't skip steps. You need facts, but then what you do with those facts, you have to go beyond the facts. You have to take the facts and let the facts begin to teach you what they are by the way they 
play out in your heart by the way they create in you new desires and new understandings and you begin to see things in new ways. But that's coming before the Lord in a very intense way. Look at how the writer of Proverbs in chapter 2 teaches this principle. Proverbs chapter 2 begins this way. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom... And apply your heart to understanding. Now listen. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek it as silver, if you search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's where the knowledge of God is. It's for those who cry out. It's for those who lift their voice in desperation. It's for those who seek after it as if it were hidden treasure. It's not merely sipping coffee, reading the paper with the Bible open and glancing over at a proverb for the day. That is not pursuing the knowledge of God. You see, it's a great error to presume on God. And here is what's going on in Hosea. These people are presuming on God. You see, just like us, they they put God in their little own boxes. They make a box for God and they say, well, God, here's the box. So now we have to change you to fit into my box. And so they conform God into this thing that fits into their box. And they presume certain things. They begin thinking that, well... The way maybe that we live or the things maybe that we do will somehow control God and we'll we'll get him in return to do the things that we want him to do. And so you see, my house won't burn down if I go to church every Sunday or I won't get sick if I give every Sunday or and we come up with our own little ideas and we all have them, but we all act like we don't. But the truth is that every one of us in this room tries to squeeze God into our own little box so that we feel comfortable. We can go into this state of denial and think that everything's going to be okay as long as everything stays in the box. You see, we're never in a greater danger than when we assume that He will always forgive us as long as we go through the outward motions of repentance. We are in great danger when we Sing with our lips and our hearts are far from Him. Great danger. Let me tell you something. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. And we dress ourselves up and we come and we act like we've got all the answers and everything's together and we don't have any problems and people ask us how we're doing and we tell them fine and in our hearts we justify that because we say, well, you know, a couple of weeks ago I counseled someone that has the same problem that I have and so if I confess that now I have the problem, how's that going to look? And it may, I don't know, God, I can't confess that because it will make that brother stumble or people will begin to gossip about me or they'll think something wrong about me and people even go so far as to think, well... I've heard people ask the question, why is it that certain people in our congregation every single Sunday come to the altar? I don't know, because they love Jesus maybe. I don't know. But certainly not for you and me to come to some realization on our own that they must have some unrepentant, deep, dark sin. Why are they always at the altar? Maybe they're praying for you. Maybe they're praying for me. But I'm just glad they're praying. We've got to be careful about our presuppositions about God. Because when we do that, the terrible consequence of that is we depersonalize God. You see, we take this very personal, loving God who reveals Himself throughout history and through His Word, and He becomes like some scientific experiment. You see, we make God into this experiment, this somehow, uh, this equation. And if you have all the right chemicals and all the right amounts and all the right order, you're going to get the same exact product every time. Listen, when we approach God in that way, when we expect God to do certain things because we've done certain things, we do not worship Him. We use Him. And we offend Him. 
God wants your heart, not just your hands. God wants your delight, not just your duty. Because God understands that when He has your heart, He has all of you. He has all of you. And so when He calls us to pursue, it is to pursue Him with fervency and desperation and to seek Him because only He only He is the solution to the problems that we face. And we also must realize every single day that God reminds us of His unceasing love by His unwavering confirmation. Look at the last part of verse 3. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. You see... God is as sure as the sunrise tomorrow. And in some strange way, we all sort of understand that it would be utterly ridiculous for us to go to bed at night worried and fretting over whether or not the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Don't ask your spouse, honey, we need to pray because I'm not sure if the sun's coming up. I'm worried. Do we have flashlights and batteries? It's just absurd. But we worry. We worry about our finances and we worry about our health and we worry about our families and we begin to get overwhelmed with worry as if this God, who is not single-handedly by His power, this universe is not on autopilot. That every morning when the sun cracks over the horizon and the light begins to beam out. It's not just automatically doing that. That our Heavenly Father is by His might and His power raising that sun up over us to show us His love and His consistency and His devotion and that He won't fail you. He comes like the morning sun. And He comes like the rain. And how does the rain come? I know how the rain comes. The rain never comes the way we want it to come, does it? We're mad because it's too dry and we need rain. How you doing, brother? Man, we need rain. All right. Then it starts raining. Lord, if it doesn't stop, we're going to flood. My yard is a swamp. You ought to see it. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I won't be able to mow my grass for a week. And we worry about... Not enough rain or too much rain. And here's the thing. It doesn't change the rain. The rain comes when it comes and it goes when it goes. It has nothing to do with our worry. It needs not our input. Because here's the thing. The reminder is is that we don't know when the rain ought to come. We don't know how much ought to come. We don't know anything about the rain. But when the rain does come, we need to respond to it. When God reigns in our life, we need to respond to that. What we do need to do is have the wisdom to make a simple application, to look outside, to see the rain clouds and to dress appropriately, to get in your car and to see rain pouring down and turn your lights on and your windshield wipers. You need to respond appropriately to the rain. You have no control over the rain. You have no wisdom about the rain. But when it comes, you need to receive it, accept it and respond to it. When God comes in our life like rain, we don't know why. We don't know when. We don't know how. But He's here. We need to respond appropriately to His rain. He reigns on us. Thank God we're not banished to the desert to thirst forever. He promises over and over and over in His Word that those who thirst, He will supply. That those who hunger and thirst, that they will be filled. But you see, these people... In Hosea's time, they didn't respond. They didn't respond to this message. They didn't respond to the painful reminder of God's unceasing love. And so you see in the very next verse, in verse 4, the Bible says, O Ephraim, God says, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like the morning cloud. 
And like the early dew, it goes away. Can I just share with you what that verse says? That word faithfulness, it means steadfast love. It is not a word of duty. It is a word of devotion. And what God is saying to His people, He's saying, oh, what will I do to you? How will I respond to you? For your love and faithfulness to me is like the morning dew. And when the sun of our days come up with all the busyness and all the trials and all the struggles that we face, it evaporates our love just like the dew of the morning is gone. And by midday, we're so far away from where we woke up. How many times have we woke up in the morning, thank God for another day, been just overwhelmed with His blessing. Five minutes later, we're kicking our kids and kicking the dog and arguing with our spouse and we get to work and everything's wrong and people are not doing their job and by lunchtime, we're just all wound up. What happened to the do? What happened to the faithfulness, the steadfast love? What happened to the... Sure confirmation that your God is like the morning sun. He's there. He's with you. He's in control. Yes, days are tough. Yes, circumstances are hard. Yes, there will be trials. Yes, this passage is replete with reminders that anyone who would dare to preach the ridiculous prosperity gospel has to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture that God loves us in such an unceasing way that He will stop at nothing to bring us home. You see, I want God. This is me. I want God to bring me to my knees under the weight of the unfinished work in my relationship with Him. I want Him afresh and anew to remind me that He's not done. And as this week has progressed, and as I have begun to, my prayers begin to, to change from, Oh, Lord, How will I make it? God, how will we get through? To God, thank you. Thank you for the reminder of your love for me and that you're not satisfied to leave me alone to myself. Thank you for the amazing rock of my precious wife that you put in my life to carry me through the darkest of times. Thank you, Lord for the people and for their encouragement and for their love. And God, thank You that all of these things are gifts from You, Lord. You. You give. We get focused on the takeaway. But He gives. And He gives liberally. And He gives freely. So as we begin to prepare our hearts now for the Lord's table... Another confirmation of God's great love. As many of you around this room will partake of the Lord's Supper as families together, as husbands, as wives, as, as around your spiritual family, the people who love you. There's no more intimate act of worship than to come before God searching our hearts, realizing that this is a celebration of remembrance of what God has done in our lives through His broken, beaten body and His shed blood. So I want to ask you some questions. I want you to search your heart and just acknowledge within you where you are this morning. Does it ever concern you that you might be missing out on some things that God wants to do in your life? When was the last time that you found yourself 
utterly dissatisfied with your walk with the Lord? Have you lingered in prayer? Have you lingered in prayer to the point that you even lose track of time? While you're asking God to bring you into a closer walk with Him. Are you troubled by your ability to rationalize the lack of time that you spend with God? Does it bother you that we're so gifted at justifying our own rebellion? Are you troubled this morning by your lack of success in reforming yourself? Will you be honest and consider the truth that all of our efforts to solve our problems, to straighten ourselves out, to make ourselves right, continually fail. Will you acknowledge that this morning? Are you disturbed when worldly things come into your life and bring more pleasure to you than the things of God? When was the last time that you honestly got before the Lord and you said, God, I love you. You know I love you. And Lord, I I love to worship you and I love to sing songs about you and I even love to, to read your word and I love to listen to preaching. But Lord... Why do worldly things just make my heart flutter? Why do I spend my days thinking about scores and statistics and profit margins and stock ratings and opinion polls and politics and you fill in the blank? Why do I get more excited about a football team than about you, Lord? And for some of you this morning, the question's a little more piercing. Why is it that you, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, you struggle, you doubt your salvation, you feel far from God, You have no peace in your heart. And yet you tell yourself that same story. But one day, God, I said this, or one day, God, I did this, or one day, God, I told the preacher this, or whatever it is you tell yourself. When will the day come when you're sick and tired? When you're sick and tired of convincing yourself that you're okay when you're not. Will today be the day that God's unceasing love for you calls you home? You see, because for you, it's not a return for you. It's home for the very first time. That the invitation for you today is to partake of this celebration for the first time. I ask you, is it so terrible to step out and walk an aisle and to confess to the glorious God of the universe who loves you more than you'll ever understand? But is it so terrible to think of what it would take to do that, that you would indefinitely just stay where you are. I beg you, all of us, let's pursue God.
Let's not be okay with where we are. Will you stand and bow your heads as Brother Donnie comes and and leads us in song? Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for this place. Let's pray for those of you who need to make decisions this morning. Those of you whose God has been dealing with your heart and now He's calling you to Himself. This is not about man. This is about you and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we come before you in this time. And God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. Lord, you know every heart in this room. God, you know those who have walked with you for what seems like an eternity. And God, you love them. And you've told them this morning that you're not done with them. God, you know those in this room that are still trying to feel their way in their new Christian walk. And God, they're still learning each day and and, and groping for stability, God. Will you encourage them? Oh, that the journey is rich and that it's wonderful. And that you will be with them every step of the way. And God, for those in this room, they need you this morning as Savior. Father, their sin is unforgiven. Lord, will you strip away every reason, every excuse, every justification in their mind. And Lord, may they glorify you with their honesty before you this morning, God. Save them, we pray. So Lord, as we open this altar and come and seek your face, we realize and recognize that all of your children are commanded to look within themselves and to confess their sin before you, to not ever approach your table okay. And so whether we pray where we are or whether we respond to this altar, every person in this room May we together in unity and one accord respond, Lord, we're not okay. You're not done with us and we need you, Lord. So will you do mighty things in this time? In Jesus' name, amen.